Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1939 film, The Rules of the Game. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Morning. Barrett, uh, this is this is a movie that I, I have seen once before. I watched it this summer. Um, so it was, and, and, and I feel like I watched, so I did something a little bit different than I normally do. Um, I usually only read about the film after I watch it, but because I have seen this recently, I decided what I'm going to do this time is do all the kind of reading and research and then watch the film again. Mm. And it was very interesting because this summer I watched it completely without context. Um, and in my head, I, if you had asked me when this movie was made, I would have placed it earlier. I would have placed it kind of in the, you know, mid early thirties, mm. but it was interesting to read about the film and how much the year 1939 how significant that is to the making of this film and the meaning of this film so i feel like i had two different experiences both really kind of amazing but but different lenses to watch um to watch this movie uh what is your history with with this film um this is a film that um i was not really aware of until probably the about the time i started teaching film uh you know and it was one of those films where when I started reading about the history of film and especially the significance of deep focus uh, and uh, kind of the influence of Renoir and other filmmakers, including as we talked about last week uh, on some of the new wave filmmakers, that's when I kind of went back and I would have first watched it on that uh, the Criterion DVD uh, that was uh, that was then available. So I kind of, you know, I got the the restored or the resurrected version of it as, uh, as, as they call it, uh, probably around 2005, 2006. Have you ever seen the, so, so this is a movie that has a, um, like with some of that we've talked about, uh, has an interesting narrative where this was originally, I think mostly the film we watched, which is about, uh, 113 minutes or so. Um, but then it was pretty rapidly cut down to 85 minutes, which is a, a hefty cut to take out of this movie. Have you ever seen the 85 minute version of this? No, and, and, and actually, um, I'm glad you brought that up because the history is interesting. So it, it premiered at 94 minutes. Um, that, was, that was Renoir's cut. And it was so badly received. Um, audiences booed and hissed and said, I guess this is something audiences did in the 1930s. They set fire at the newspapers <laughs> and theaters. I, 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 I guess there was no fire code. So the, so the, the, so the response was, was very strongly negative. So Renoir... At the next screening, he had his editor watch the audience's response and then cut according to the scenes that attracted the most the most violent reaction. So that's when the film got cut down to 81 minutes. Um, and then during the war, um, the Allies accidentally bombed the studio where the film where the negative was stored. So the negative was destroyed. But but somehow enough people saw. Even even the eighty one minute version of the film, that it actually appeared in the first sight and sound uh, greatest films of all time list in in nineteen fifty three uh, at number ten. Even though people were kind of seeing this this sort of butchered version of it, um, and then the so called and it's called a resurrection rather than a restoration because what we're watching at one hundred and six minutes was not the film that Renoir himself actually created. Um, when the film was restored or resurrected, the restorers had access to about 200 cans of film. 
And so they both, we I presume, put in, we have all the footage that Ren Marsh uh, intended, but then they added scenes as well. I haven't done enough detailed research to know what scenes they added or how Renoir responded to that. Um, but that's a very long answer to your original question, which is no, I've never seen any other version of the film other than this one. I've never seen the 94. I don't know if it's possible to see it. And I've never, um, I've never seen the uh, the eighty one either. Um, so, like uh, last week's film, Breathless, I feel like this is a movie that is fascinating both for its form and its content. We could have an entire com- formalist conversation about mm. what what this movie does visually because this is this is pretty amazing visually. And and again, needing to remember, and we talked about this last week. Uh, the technology that they were working with, what they had and didn't have to make this movie, um, both how amazing it looks and how amazing it sounds. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a, a the the uh, the audio mix of this movie is stunning because of the nature of how it like in the party scene, especially how it moves from room to room mm-hmm. as if you're walking around hearing part of a conversation, and as you move away from it, you lose that. And, you know, and even like the camera technology they had to do these kind of tracking shots. I mean, it feels like it's a steady cam that, you know, but like that didn't exist. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, uh, I would love to see a, a, a major breakdown of just how some of these shots are made. So it has this whole formal aspect to it. But then in terms of content, this is a deeply interesting movie to think about. Uh, Renoir talked about this um you know, making this movie really on the eve of of World War II, um, and and World War II being very apparent that it wasn't like uh, I mean that they, they there was this strong sense that this that that Europe was about to get engulfed in another um, in another major war, uh, and that you know he even calls this a war movie without a war that mm-hmm. that he thinks that that that's really central to it. So I kind of want to talk in both directions, but before we get to that. Uh, who is uh, Renoir, and who was he in 1939? Well, he's the he's the son of the painter Auguste Renoir. Um, so it's a very artistic family. You may have noticed in the credits his brother Claude is uh, is one of the uh, co-producers of the film. Um, he was um, he was pretty much at the top of his game in 1939. He had had a he'd been making films for about 15 years. He'd had a number of pretty big successes. Um, uh, about four years before, he had done a film called Bordeaux Sound uh, Saved from Drowning, which was a big hit. He'd done Le Bit Human, The Human Beast. Uh, and then right the year before um, Rules of the Game, he had filmed Grand Illusion, which was actually a film I thought about watching to do Renoir. Um, that's kind of his World War I film. So when he, uh, and he actually formed his own production company in order to make films the way he wanted to make them. It's one of the many analogies or connections I will draw between Renoir and Orson Welles. Um, when, you know, both in terms of their filmic technique and in terms of the fact that sometimes they swim, they swim against the establishment and then the case of rules of the game, it doesn't end up exactly being the film that Renoir wanted, wanted to make. But really, so I mean, he had every expectation going into making this film and releasing it that it would be very successful. Um, so he was really somebody who, uh, he was re- he really represented the, the the best of French cinema at the time that he made the film. Um, how much? Because he, he there there's a, a lot and a lot of in what I was reading from him uh, or reading about this film is later interviews with him about it. Um, 
seemingly in the 60s after the kind of resurrection of this movie. Um, how much do you trust him when he talks about this film? And I ask that because I feel like there's kind of multiple takes on what he's trying to do here. Because sometimes it almost sounds like he's saying, I was just, I needed to do something that was light and, you know, to a degree. And it's like, but then he's also talking about how this is this social criticism indictment of French society that's ignoring the things happening in Europe. And it's like, he feel it feels like he's playing fast and loose with the narrative of this film. So like, so how much do you trust him when you hear him say something? Yeah, well, there's another Wells connection for you, right? I mean, uh, I, I never trust anything Orson Wells says about any of his films uh, or anything in his life. I, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall back on the old D.H. Lawrence dictum, right? Trust the, tell, trust the tale, not the teller. Um, but at the same time, I would say that, you know, maybe it's not a matter of trust. Maybe it's a matter of saying that any artist, I mean, I, I don't think that any artist making a really good work of art sets out to do a single thing. You know, I think if you set out to do a single thing, you 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 can fall into the realm of of getting didactic or preachy or whatever. So I suspect that really what's going on is is that Renoir had a number of different things going on in his head, and and I think the nature of the film kind of reflects that, right? As you were saying earlier, I mean, I mean, you can look at you can look at this film as a bedroom farce. You could look at this film as a, a social satire. You could look at this film as a commentary on the impending war. Uh, you know, there's a number of different ways to think about the film. And so I think that what Renoir is doing is he's reflecting each of those different perspectives depending on his mood. And that's that's uh, uh, reading reading about the reception of this movie, the legacy of this movie. That's one of the things Sadigit Ra said about it as he sort of like it defies it defies easy uh, easy characterization or easy description. He says it's innovative, but it's like it's hard to even pin down what it's innovating because it's doing all of these different things. So I want to think about you, you, you talked about its initial uh, initial screenings. And I mean, this seems like about as poorly of received film as you could have. And then it, and then it pretty quickly just gets banned in Nazi occupied Germany. Right, so right. it's, it's almost like, I mean, it's this, this big production. There's a lot of hype around it because of who he is and, and all the kind of pieces that they're, they're, they're putting into this. Um, so from your sense, was this poorly initi- poor, poorly received initially because people didn't get what he was doing or because they did get what he was doing? Yeah, that's a great question, Sam. And I think I think I think the answer is the latter. I think they did get what he was doing. I think that the the the, the way that he's critiquing the French bourgeois or upper class uh, society is is pretty clear. And the way that he is demonstrating i mean you know the film is kind of ironically entitled the rules of the game because the because the whole point of the game is how do you kind of game the game and there's these you know there's this lip service paid to etiquette and there's this lip service paid to propriety but what's actually happening is completely improper and kind of follows no no rules of etiquette so the rules of the game is really about breaking the rules of the game and i think that's probably what the audience was was responding to now and and uh, feel free to say you don't know the answer to this, but was would the people seeing this? I don't know how like French cinema worked in in at this time. Like like would lower class people have been going to the movies? Would they have read this as an indictment of the people above them, or mm-hmm. an indictment of French society, or is this just not reaching them and doesn't really have the chance to? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, yeah, I, I will I will plead ignorance in terms of understanding how 
widely viewed such films were. I'm really not sure. I can I can give you different answers for films in America, but I'm not sure about France. Sure, sure. And I, I loved how um, the social criticism is so interesting to think about on the eve of World War II, but it, you, you also don't need that context. Like, like I, when I watched it this summer, I just thought, man, this seems, it seems kind of spot on in a particular kind of way, even though I don't live in, uh, and have never lived in French society, like like that there are these um, this these sort of sets of social rules about how things appear, and if you do things properly, you can do then you can do the improper and and sort of uh, sort of get away with it. And especially once you add the World War II element into it, like I I mean I it's hard for me to watch this and not think about my own life in terms of like the things that I distract myself with so I don't have to pay attention to these other, these other big things because I live a life that is uh, bourgeois enough that is comfortable enough, mm-hmm. right. That it's like, well, this bad thing that's happening. If I don't want to think about it, like I can kind of go through my day and not think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause this movie is also a lot about distractions, right? Like, yeah. like what are the things that they're going to do to even going to the country, right. Mm-hmm. Is a distraction. And then, I mean, it's like children. <laughs> I mean, they're like, we're going to go on this hunt and we're, we're going to this, and then we're going to put on, and just the way they get excited about the masquerade and the the play that they're going to put on. I mean, it lo- it looks like like um, a bunch of eight year olds putting on a show for each other. I I, I kind of love that. You know, well, you know, I mean, yeah, that's a really good point, Sam. Because what's interesting about the film is, even though you can see the film as a social critique, it's not as though there are any individuals in the film. That are, that are singled out for criticism. You know, so so one of the things that Renoir said, we're back to, you know, what did Renoir say about his own film? And I've already said we have to discount that, but I'm now going to break my own rule. Um, you know, Renoir says, in this film, there are no villains. And I mean, that's actually kind of true, right? I mean, you look at these people and you think, well, they're kind of behaving badly. It's like, you know, Christine, who does she love? Does she love this guy? Does she love that guy? Does she love that guy? It doesn't seem as though marriage has any any rules. I mean, Lisette spends no time with her husband. She'd rather be with her with her mistress. And you know, and even Octave, who's a good guy, seems to be playing both ends against the middle, and then under, then realizes, and of course, I realized this before he admitted it that he's actually in love with Christine. But but they bounce around. When you said like children, I think that's actually a perfect description because. You don't sense that there's any malice. It's, it's, it's as though there are people who live at the level of simply emotional responses. They, they, even though they have conversations, they don't seem to be people who think deeply about life. Um, so, so you enjoy them in a sense, but then you kind of step back and say, yeah, but what a silly society this is as people just kind of bounce around like this. Oh, you just said so many things that I want to talk about. Um, so, so, so here's here's one of the things as I was thinking about this. One of the criticisms I've made about movies we've watched in the past that that I feel like Renoir turns this into like a feature instead of a bug in this movie is that this is a movie about love affairs and romantic notions, and I don't think anybody loves anybody. And like, like I don't believe even like like I feel like uh, like Giroux is. It's like he has this romantic notion about having romantic notions. So yes. he loves Christine, but it's like, I don't think you really do. And I don't think that Robert loves Christine and, and I don't think Christine loves Robert. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think uh, Schumacher loves, loves Lizette. I don't think Lizette loves anybody. She maybe loves, loves Christine more than it's like, 
So, so it's like we're going through all of, and this is where I think you know that title rules of the game too. Like the game says we're supposed to have these kinds of relationships, so we're all playing these parts. But it doesn't seem like anybody's really focusing on on love. Does not seem central in this movie, even though it is ostensibly like the motivation for all of these things that people are doing, and they use the word a lot. Well, I mean, we, yeah, and of course you have you have the epigraph from Marriage of Figaro, um, and 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 I think that's one of to me that's one of the really interesting subtext of the film, and one of the ways in which I think the film is slightly subversive, um, in that I do think because they have a relationship that predates Parisian society, I do think that Octave loves Christine, and I think Christine loves Octave, mm-hmm. and I think what is because he's the one at the end who makes the sacrifice for her even though that unfortunately leads to, to, to death mm-hmm. um, for Giraud. But what I think is subversive about that is Christine is, is of course, German or Austrian. I'm not sure which. Um, and their relationship is based on um, their, 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 their knowing each other in a Germanic rather than a French context. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's, that's how the actress actually got the role. Um, uh, Renoir had gone to the theater to watch a play to possibly cast an actress who was in the play, but he met Christine in the audience, and she actually was a, a German or Austrian emigre who had a background as an actress. She and, was an Austrian princess. Right, thank you, Austrian princess, right. And yeah, and so Renoir meets her and says, yeah, here's my Christine. And everybody says, well, she's too old, but that's who he wanted. So, so that's a case of where the film, of course, is imitating life. Because when people talk about her being Austrian and, and being an outsider to Parisian society, that's actually true of the actress herself. So I, I, I don't know exactly what the audience hooted at, and I don't know exactly when they burned their newspapers, but I, I wonder if some of that had to do with this kind of recognition of this Austrian woman uh as being somehow the 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 object of adoration yeah Uh, another so so another thing that ties into this that as i was thinking about the movie this morning i i was seeing how interesting the character of christine is and so i'm glad you point this out because she is also i think this is a movie that that where, where where people aren't people are talking about these desires that they have but it's like I don't know that they're really asking themselves even like, what do I want? What do I actually want? Not what am I supposed to want? Mm. But, but Christine has these two conversations and they're one of them is really fleeting. Um, one, when she's talking to Lizette and she asks her if she wants children mm. and it's sort of like, that one st- stands out to me because like people aren't having those kind of conversations. Mm. And, it, and it sort of is this moment where she's, where she's kind of asking that I think to herself and really asking like, what do I actually want out of any of this? And then with Octave, there is the the conversation about, and this goes back to their their history in Austria, right? Where he's talking about her father, and he even goes out and does like the conducting thing for a moment, and it's yes, like yes. it's like that's such a such like this interesting, genuine moment about somebody reflecting on something that they do love, or something that they aspire to, or something that they they once had and lost it's like this movie does not have a lot of that but christine seems to be kind of the connection point for asking that question um so so in this second viewing she became much more interesting to me as a character because nobody else was asking that question to anyone seemingly you know i and and i'm glad you pointed out that conversation between uh between her and um 
Christina Lizette, because one of the things I think that's that's really kind of prescient about this movie, and one of the things that really makes it a, a great film, is that it passes, you know, the so-called Bechdel test, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where you know, do you have a scene in which two women talk to each other about something besides men? Uh, and this film clearly passes passes that test, for what that's worth. Yes, and then uh, what? Another aspect of this that I love is the I, I'm I'm often a sucker for sort of the upstairs downstairs type mm -hmm. of story. I like that kind of thing, and how you get this um, kind of it is like a compare and contrast. But often it's 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 what I love is how much the and this is maybe part of the indictment too is that this is this indictment of this upper class society, but that it gets mirrored in the lower class. So like you go from upstairs people are like having these proper conversations and then it sort of cuts to small conversations that are very gossipy about the relationships and then we kind of fade to the the, the servants eating downstairs and they're having the same conversations you know so it's like they're both um he's criticizing those people at the top but he's also he also like mirrors even love triangle things mirrors in both upstairs and downstairs. And I, and I know that was one of his intents, um, but he's showing that like this thing that is maybe this sickness up here is, is a sickness that doesn't just live up there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about this film, we've talked a little bit about Christine. Do you have characters that, uh, that stand out to you as particularly interesting? Well, I, I, I find Octave really interesting. And um, I think people know that that's Renoir himself. Um, Renoir had always wanted to be an actor. And so he put he put himself in, in the film. And I mean, he's, he's really the character that um, kind of moves most easily among all the various other characters, at least on, on the upstairs world, and even to a certain extent in the, in the downstairs world. And, I, and I've always loved, uh, been somewhat baffled by uh, the scene in which he gets trapped in the bear suit. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I have a, a symbolic interpretation of, of that moment, but there's just something about him in a bear suit. And I think part of it is it points out the self-absorption of everybody around him, right? Because it's a very simple matter to unzip the back of the bear suit for him, but no, but nobody will, will stop whatever they're doing in order to help him out with this fairly uh, simple task. It's also maybe a parable of transformation uh, and the difficulty of, of being transformed. It reminds me a little bit of how the film uh, kind of echoes Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, both in being about love and in having a film with a drama within a drama. And rather than being transformed into an ass, he's briefly transformed into a bear. So I just, I mean, to me, whenever he's on in a scene, it just lights up. It seems like there's energy going on going on there. And 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 even the the beautiful deep focus scene when Christine is talking about her relationship to to uh, to the pilot. And, uh, and, and, uh, he and, uh, and the husband are in the background kind of making faces as she's talking. It's just, I don't know. So to, to me, he's, he's kind of the center of the film in a way, which is another interesting comment, right? Like to me, the most interesting actor is the director. And that says something about this as an auteur film. Absolutely. And, and that's another example of something I didn't know the first time I watched it. So the first time I watched it, the character whoever the actor who played octave was because i didn't know who it was i was like man that guy pops off the screen he's amazing and and he right because he's also um exists in a way where he can he interacts with the servants in ways that because he sort of has this at least flirtatious relationship with lizette a little bit too to the point where her husband is sort of 
wondering, you know, I mean, this, and this, this leads to the, the ending of the film too, right? That, mm -hmm. that Octave is, is moving in her. So, so it's sort of, he can move around in ways other people can't. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I do love the, the, the bear suit thing and just the, the burden that it is. Everybody treats it as such a burden to help him out. And even while she, um, Genevieve finally helps him. You can tell she's frustrated that she has to help him yes. when she's pulling the pulling the hands off. Um, and that, I mean that that gets into the just the 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 craziness of that um, that scene as well as we are just jumping back and forth between these things, which leads to uh, my one of the great. Uh, lines in this movie. This is a very funny movie too, which is which is another thing to 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 say out loud here. Um, and I think maybe the funniest line in the movie is when uh, when Robert says to the the head butler, uh, "Put an end to this farce." And he says, "Which one?" <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah, such, it's, it's such yeah. a great moment. It's a slapstick comedy on top of it. It's mm -hmm. yeah, it's um, yeah. So I, I just yeah, that's that 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 is in fact that is a that is a great line. Well, it's interesting too because um, thinking of sort of the slapstick nature of this, one of the things that that jumped out at me as I wa watching it this time was watching. So we have two like fights that happen, right? There, there's uh, uh, Schumacher going after Marceau with a gun, right? So mm -hmm. there's this real threat of violence, and you can tell he would be happy to shoot him. It mm -hmm. seems like, right? Yeah. And then at the same time you have, and maybe this is rules of the game stuff as well. You have the upper class class men fighting. So you have, um, you have Robert and Giroux fighting and they're fighting. Seems a lot more like they're again, kids kind of slapping each other. Like, like they, they're not really fighting. Like there's this kind of, it almost seems like there's supposed to be a kind of propriety to it, but they look very silly. And it reminded me of Rashomon. Mm. When we finally get the like the the last version of the story, and you realize mm. that this thing would because because I promise you, ten years later, when Giroux or Robert are telling this story, it is a far more heroic version of this fight that they have, right? <laughs> but like we actually see that it, it just it looks silly. It looks like they're kind of wrestling and slapping each other, but not like this is not a. a you know, these are not bare knuckle brawlers uh, doing this, um, which made me think about how interesting it would be to see the the Rashomon version of this, because there is no point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, like like this, there is no character where it's like, well, this clearly this is the eyes you're seeing it through. Like, and I think that's one of the powerful things that Renoir is doing is because it's an ensemble, because there is no hero or villain. Like, it is you really are third person to this you're not i don't feel like you're through any uh, any one character's eyes so nobody comes off as a villain exactly but also nobody comes off as necessarily heroic right. i mean octave has some moments because there are some personal moments with octave but but i found that really interesting in terms of its storytelling yeah and you know i mean i suppose in a way you know you could argue that octave is the closest thing to a point of view but you're right i i don't think there really is you're not really limited to any any one perspective one of the interesting things i want to say about him though maybe one of the reasons why he is kind of the catalyst for a lot of things is he is himself a hanger-on i mean he is a parasite um you know he he really doesn't have any way of making a living as he talks about except to, to except to sort of sponge off of friends um and so in a sense he's maybe the he is the closest thing to somebody who is in that society but not fully of that society and that kind of helps him move up and down between the upstairs and the downstairs well and he knows he is i mean yeah. that it's why he has i mean they 
I think um, Renoir he talks about him as like a sad clown character a little bit, and like like that, you 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 feel like he knows there's a little bit. Um, he has moments where I think he can see how pathetic he is in some ways, but then other ways he he's he's not. But I yeah I I think he's a pretty rich character in that way. But that but that does also actually uh, kind of illuminate the bear costume moment, right? Because he is in a sense a performing bear for the society, and being trapped in that costume kind of makes him realize and uh, confront that. He also delivers one of the, uh, I think, the powerful lines in this film, which gets quoted a lot, which is, uh, the awful thing is that everyone has their reasons. Right, right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I think that that that's maybe a, a thesis line in this. Yeah, no, I, I that's a great line, and you're right. That is kind of a thesis line, because I think that's the line that enables us to understand why. It, it kind of complements the other point, or the other comment by Renoir I mentioned earlier, where he says there's no villains in the film. Right, because if you if you start with that point of view that everybody has his or her own reasons, then that means that you're not going to judge that person. You're just going to say, well, they've got the reason for doing what they're doing, whether you agree with it or not. And I think this is a film that really takes that seriously. The idea that people have their own justifications, their own reasons, their own their own motivations, and the film, as much as possible, is trying to view that as. I don't know if I want to say objectively or dispassionately or faithfully as as possible, which is kind of the philosophy or the, the yeah, it's kind of the philosophy behind the technique. So, you know, that that's that's where, as you alluded to earlier, Sam, that's where kind of the, the theme of the film and the form of the film kind of meet. So mm-hmm. if you take that as your kind of thematic uh, given, that people have their own reasons, how do you film it? Well, you want to film it in a way that shows everybody kind of, in a sense, all, sort of as they see themselves, or mm-hmm. even in a sense, kind of as God sees them. You know, it's kind of from a, from a completely objective perspective. Uh, what is the significance in your mind, or is there a significance to um, Robert's obsession with music boxes and mechanical instruments and things like that? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I think... Um, well, you know, you, you could say that, I mean, I, I, okay, so I think one thing is it's sim- he simply delights in showing it off. You know, I, th- I think for him to have these objects that he can then uh, make a, do a performance for other people. So Renoir talks about the fact that that scene when he unveils that big machine, right, they took two days to shoot that until he got just, I mean, that, ten, that five seconds of Robert's face, Renoir said was maybe the best shot he ever, he ever made. So I think part of it is it gets back to your notion about the the folks in the film as being kind of childlike, right? I think that's kind of the essence of he's a big kid and he just loves winding these things up and making and making them work. Now the other thing we could say about that is um, it makes me think about um, I should, maybe shouldn't say this, but think, think, it makes me think about my son's enjoyment of computers um, and. The nice thing about computers, like any machines, is by and large, they will do what you tell them to do. Uh, they're very different from people. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you, you give it the input, and you get, usually you get the output you want. So I think what's nice about Robert and the mechanical objects is he's got kind of a messy emotional life. He's got, you know, he's, whereas the, the mechanical objects, those are things he can control. Those are things that are predictable. Those are those are things that uh, perform the way he wants them to. So I think there's a kind of reassurance for him 
in the relationship to those mechanical objects. They don't have any of the emotional complications that people have. Could you say that there are rules to the game of a, of yes. a box that they, they, that's why I think it's so interesting when that big calliope thing, it's so disconcerting in, in when everything comes to a head and then it breaks and you get that, it's just like this clang that happens. It's, it's one of the great audio moments in the movie. Like I get, I, because one of the times I watched this, I was wearing headphones and like, I got scared by the sound of, and I just wanted somebody to fix it. I want somebody to stop it, and eventually, and eventually it does. But but there is this sense that even that is kind of um, even you know that the the rules of that thing have been broken somehow, and it's causing this disorder. And that, I mean, and that maybe touches on the ending of the movie where it's it's sort of about you know this tragic thing happens, but it's like how do we just restore order? How do we get things back to exactly the way they were? So even like Schumacher is for some reason rehired at the end, like, like yeah. he was dismissed, but he just, because he's there, it's like Robert starts talking to him as if he works there again. And you just sort of think like, wow. So, so Giroux is dead, but nothing else has changed, yeah, yeah. you know? And so, so there is this sort of, can I restore things back to the order that I understand? But you know what? I think you can also turn it around the other way. And you can say, as you watch all these people kind of bounce off of each other, what's driving them? Are, are they are they in fact mechanisms in a game you know and I, and I go back to that uh, that quote from uh, from from Figaro about Cupid you know Cupid flittering uh, was it not if Cupid was given wings was it not to flitter was it not to flitter and it makes me think a little bit about again I made a connection earlier to Midsummer Night's Dream where these lovers do not understand in Midsummer Night's Dream that they are being manipulated by the fairies mm. um, so what is so they are and you know whenever i teach this on my stream i always tell my students to just substitute hormones for fairies and you've got the idea um and and i think you know you can say the same thing about the people in in this in this in the in the, in the film you know what is what is manipulating them to play the games that, that they are playing maybe they are in a sense like mechanical objects well that's interesting because i also thought about the music box and is that a this is such a uh complicated visual film because they're because the shots because of the deep focus <clears throat> the shots necessary i mean i i just wonder how they block this stuff out yeah. so that you'd have this happening and then we can move into a conversation in the background and this thing in the background is going to come to the foreground like it gets very it's very complex i presume like creating a a a you know, mechanical musical instrument where like everything's got to be got to work just right to make these shots work. I, again, I think about that kind of tracking shot in the party where you're moving from conversation. To, it's, I mean, it is like a symphony of uh, of filmmaking. You know, where where you're having people in the background moving from doorway to doorway. You're having people slip through, and and that that whole party sequence feels like this uh, feels like this kind of music box. But what's interesting is reading about the the production process is uh Renoir seems like he's I mean he's inter he's interested in that intricacy but he also seems like he's very collaborative as a filmmaker because he keeps rewriting things depending on who like he rewrites Christine when he when he casts this actress because it's like well the old Christine didn't work so now we need to think about how does she fit into the how does this part fit into the intricacies of this he rewrites Octave when he takes that role because it has to fit who he is. So, so he seems very like uh, collaborative in that way, but everything sort of fits to clicks together uh, visually to make this, this movie, the kind of visual masterpiece it is. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so the the movie itself as a construction, in a sense, is then imitating the complexity of the construction of the society that's depicting. So it's kind of a it's kind of a a symbol of itself in a way. Yes. Uh, as reading about this, the hunting sequences is, I mean, the the party sequence and the hunting sequence are sort of the two big, mm. you know, kind of uh, moments that people like to talk about. Um, what are your thoughts on the the hunting sequence in this film? Well, the, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the the hunting sequence could. I mean, it's it's an interesting sequence in that it could come off as a kind of, um, again, a kind of satire of this destructive spirit in the society, right? So, so you could see the hunting sequence as some kind of a comment on on the impending war. You you could see the hunting sequence as a comment on the. Um, uh, on the idle rich who have nothing better to do than go out and, and destroy animals, or the, but I think the hunting sequence is a is one more way for social interaction to happen outside the bounds of the villa. So it's like you have, you know, how do you behave in the nat in the so-called natural world? How do you behave in in the more artificial world? And I think what it, what you see is they behave the same whether they're outside or whether they're, they're inside. So it's a kind of a continuity of the social structure that you, that you see revealed either way. Uh, and I, I do think it's interesting. I mean, this is, this is a much older film, but like you would never, you would never see a sequence like that in a movie uh, because like there are lots of animals killed in the production of this movie. Like they are, you know, so, so when you're, I, uh, when you're watching, especially the, the the sort of the one famous shot of the the lingering shot of the rabbit, the rabbit dying, yeah. like I presume that's just a rabbit that was shot yeah. that they caught this yeah. moment, and like that takes on a different feel. I mean, it reminds me of uh, in Apocalypse Now the the, mm. the cow that gets slaughtered, mm. um, or I can't remember what animal it is, but but yeah. like that 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 has this like there's this more visceral sense you get from it because you're sort of acutely aware that you're. You're you're not watching trickery. You're watching this thing happen. And I think it. Yeah, I think that's right, uh, Sam. I, I think that that moment of that 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 is one of the famous shots in the film. That rabbit twitching as it dies. It, it's another way in which Renoir manages to shift emotional gears quickly and subtly, but effectively. Because I think that with the other rabbits running around, you know, you know they're really being shot. It's at a distance, and so I think that looks like a game. Mm -hmm. But then it ends with. I mean, and, and that's obviously, in my view, uh, that's parallel to what happens to Giroux at the end. So I, I think it's a reminder that these games that you're playing, this the shooting of rabbits, which is just kind of, you know, I mean, I realize you could say we need to, he needs to eradicate his rabbits, but it really is a game that they're all going out to play, that that, that actually has a cost. And in the same way, Giroux at the end is the rabbit who is, who, who is the cost of, uh, what the games the society plays out, because there may be very little consequences for the rich, but for Schumacher, that's 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 reality for him. I mean, he really thinks that's his wife. He really thinks that he's being cuckolded, mm -hmm. and so you can play the game, but ultimately there really is no game without consequences. And so the rabbit and Jero both remind us of that. Uh, another scene that I loved, um, I realize this is way out of order, but <clears throat> I'd forgotten how the movie opens mm. and it opens at the, at the airfield and it's, you know, and it, and, um, and I, I love 
the, and it just it opens with just sort of this moment of excitement and again you don't know who any of these characters are and then so you're 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 not introduced initially to um to Robert or Christine but you're but Giroux is the is the first character you're going to see and you see him kind of in his most heroic moment but you also see him spoil the heroic moment you know by again going back to sort of you know acting like children like like his response to I mean it, it reminds me of um, when my kids were little, especially when it's like, there is this sort of perfect moment that's spoiled by the, by sometimes a tired child's inability to like read the room, you know, or like understand the moment. And, and I think, and then that sets up all of these other things and especially how it transitions to the, the, him being interviewed on radio to people listening to the radio. And you're, you're aware that this thing has, that the thing he says has these consequences that then you know, click everything else moving forward. I really like that opening. Yeah. Do you have other things you want to talk about with this film? Well, I, 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 I kind of want to go back to the notion of the film's influence. Um, you know, I already alluded to the fact that, you know, because the, the resurrection of the film is dedicated to Andre Bazan. And we talked about Bazan last week with the new wave and, and how important Renoir was to him for a number of reasons, including the deep focus and the respect for the continuity of space and time. But um, one of the um, new wave directors, uh, Alain René, who did uh, last year at Marine Bad and Hiroshima, My Amour, he said about this, he says, there were, and he probably would have seen the rules of the game. I, I'm not sure, he would have said this about the rules of the game before the re resurrected version. Uh, so he would have seen it in the early 50s. He said, the rules of the game remains the single most overwhelming experience I've ever had in the cinema. For me, everything had been turned upside down. All my ideas about cinema had been changed. Uh, and then Paul Schrader, and we watched Schrader's uh, First Reformed uh, last year at some time. Uh, Schrader says the rules of the game stands above all other films because quite simply it has it all. If one movie can stand for all others, represent all that film can be, that film is the rules of the game. At the end of an era, Renoir took a dying genre of the bedroom farce and used it to define the world. So. I, so I, I guess what I what I want to say is it's it's a it's a unique film. It's it's a Citizen Kane like film, uh, in that it's a film that um, appeals to audiences, but it's also a film that commentators and film critics and filmmakers kind of keep going back to again and again and again. Absolutely. Are there are there direct um, film influences on this going forward that like that 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 you can think of? Yes, that's next week's film. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> great. Uh, so what do you have for us? Yeah, so next week's film is, is uh, I've been wanting to do some Robert Altman. Oh, uh, I can't wait. And, uh, and I was going to do Nashville, but it wasn't easily available. And I'm glad I waited because I've got the perfect quote from Robert Altman. Robert Altman said, the rules of the game taught me the rules of the game. So I think the most direct homage to uh, rules of the game is Altman's film Gosford Park. Uh, from 2001. Uh, and just as another another teaser to our listeners, Gosford Park was written by Julian Fellows, who of course went on to do um, Downton Abbey. Uh, it's jam-packed, as is typical of an Altman film, it is jam-packed with top flight actors. Um, so I, it, to me, it's the best example of what does it mean to be influenced by rules of the game? So that's that's what I think we need to look at next week. 
Oh, fantastic! I have ne- I've I've seen a number of Altman films, but I've never seen Gosford Park. So I'm really excited, uh, really excited to watch this. I know that uh, my daughter and wife, who are big fans of Downton Abbey, will be excited to uh, to watch this as well. I know my wife has seen it, but um, yeah, this will be this will be great. I'm very excited, uh, very excited to see this. Barrett, thank you so much for. Um, for recommending this movie uh, and for having this conversation. I feel, I say this every week, but I feel like watching it, I learned a lot. Reading about it, I learned a lot. But in having a conversation about it is where I really, um, I feel like ideas start to crystallize or more ideas start to blossom as as we talk. So um, this is definitely a movie that you can see it when you when you're watching it. You can see how influential this movie is and this actually in in a similar way to breathless you could watch that and say like oh i could see how this got a generation of people excited like i could see this movie influencing the way people think again think visually about a movie i i, I feel like we didn't say as much as we could about mm. these long hallway shots and the, the, yeah. the moving cameras and things like that but there just isn't time but like I, this is this is a joy to watch and you can watch it on, on so many levels. So thank you so much for recommending this. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Gosford park in the video store. <laughs>